0: Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 6th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's begin today by reading the weather forecast for northeast Iowa. This comes from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. Partly cloudy today, there's a quiet weekend ahead. We are finally going to get back into some sunshine today. Despite the cooler start this morning, Temperatures should get back to the upper 20s and lower 30s across the area. Our weekend ahead looks fairly quiet. We are still monitoring a system that looks to mainly stay in Missouri and extreme southeast Iowa on Saturday night. At this time, it appears this will miss much of our area, if not all of us. Next week, plan on a nice start Monday with highs around 40, a system later next week may bring us some rain and snow showers as well. Looking at the stories on the front page of The Courier today, they include Man Faces Charge for City Council Argument, Recount Policies Could Change, Golden Age of Lottery Jackpots, and we'll begin reading Speaker's Chair Still Empty, McCarthy Fails for Third Long Day in the GOP House Speaker Fight. The story comes from the Associated Press, Lisa Mascaro and Farnish Amari are the authors, and it begins with a photograph of Representative Kevin McCarthy, a Republican from California, as he arrives to the House chamber as the House meets for a third day to elect a speaker and convene the 118th Congress in Washington, Dateline, Washington, for a long and frustrating third day divided Republicans kept the Speaker's chair of the U.S. House sitting empty. Tuesday, as party leader Kevin McCarthy failed again and again in an excruciating string of ballots to win enough GOP votes to seize the chamber's gavel. Pressure was building as McCarthy lost 7th, 8th, and then historic 9th, 10th, and 11th rounds of voting, surpassing the number of votes 100 years ago the last time there was a prolonged fight to choose a Speaker in a disputed election. By nightfall, despite raucous protests from Democrats, Republicans voted to adjourn and return Friday to try again. With McCarthy's supporters and foes locked in stalemate, the House could not formally open for the new session of Congress, swear in elected members, nor conduct official business. And feelings of boredom, desperation, and annoyance seemed increasingly evident. One McCarthy critic, Representative Matt Gates of Florida, cast votes for Donald Trump, a symbolic but pointed sign of the broad divisions over Republican Party's future. Then he went further, formerly nominating the former president to be House Speaker on the 11th ballot. Trump got one vote from Gates, drawing laughter. Ahead of the second anniversary of the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol by Trump supporters trying to overturn Joe Biden's election, Democrats said it was time to get serious. Quote, this sacred House of Representatives needs a leader, said Democrat Joe Neguse of Colorado, nominating his own party's leader, Hakeem Jeffries, as Speaker. McCarthy could be seen talking one-on-one in whispered and animated conversations in the House chamber. His emissaries sidled up to holdouts and grueling negotiations proceeded in the GOP Whip's office down the hall. McCarthy remained determined to pursue Republicans to end the paralyzing debate that is blighting his new GOP majority. McCarthy's leadership team presented a core group of the Republican holdouts with a deal on paper for rule changes in exchange for their support, said one of the opponents, conservative Republican Ralph Norman of South Carolina, as he exited a late-day meeting. It included mandating 72 hours for bills to be posted before votes, among other things, though details were scarce. Lest hopes get ahead of reality, he added, quote, this is round one, unquote. Holdouts, Led by the Chamber's Freedom Caucus, are seeking ways to sink the power of the Speaker's office and give rank and file lawmakers more influence, with seats on key committees and the ability to draft and amend bills in a more open process. One of the holdout's key asks is to reinstate a rule that would allow a single lawmaker to seek a motion to vacate the chair, essentially, to call a House vote to oust the Speaker. It's the same rule a previous era of Tea Party Republicans used to threaten the removal of GOP Speaker John Boehner, and McCarthy has resisted reinstating it. The path ahead remained highly uncertain. What started as a political novelty, the first time since 1923 a nominee had not won the gavel on the first vote, devolved into a bitter Republican Party feud, and deepening potential crisis. Jeffries of New York won the most votes on every ballot, but also remained short of a majority. McCarthy ran second, gaining no ground. McCarthy's right flank detractors, led by the Freedom Caucus and aligned with Trump, appeared emboldened by the standoff. Even though the former president publicly backed McCarthy, Representative Scott Perry Republican from Pennsylvania, the leader of the Freedom Caucus, and a leader of Trump's efforts to challenge the 2020 presidential election, asserted that McCarthy cannot be trusted and tweeted his displeasure that negotiations over rule changes and other concessions were being made public. Quote, when confidences are betrayed and leaks are directed, it's even more difficult to trust, he tweeted. Republican Party holdouts repeatedly put forward the name of Representative Byron Donalds of Florida, assuring the stalemate that increasingly carried undercurrents of race and politics would continue. They also put forward Republican Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma, splitting the protest vote. Donalds, who is black, is seen as an emerging party leader and a GOP counterpoint to the Democratic leader Jeffries, who is the first black leader of a major political party in the U.S. Congress and on track himself to become Speaker someday. Another black Republican, newly elected John James, nominated McCarthy on the seventh ballot as nominators became a roll call of the GOP's rising stars. For the 10th, it was newly elected Juan Kiskamani of Arizona, an immigrant from Mexico whose speech drew chants of U.S.A., U.S.A. Several Republicans appear unwilling to ever vote for McCarthy. Ballots kept producing almost the same outcome, 20 conservative holdouts still refusing to support McCarthy and leaving him far short of the 218 typically needed to win the gavel. The longest fight for the gavel started in late 1885, and dragged on for two months with 133 ballots during debates over slavery in the run up to the Civil War. Our next story is titled Golden Age of Lottery Jackpots. 940 million mega millions prize is just the latest of massive jackpots. This story comes from the Associated Press, journalist Scott McFetridge and Margaret Stafford, Dateline Des Moines. Call it the golden age of lottery jackpots. Or to put it another way, what's up with all the massive lottery prizes? The latest haul, up for grabs, is a 940 million mega-millions jackpot with a drawing set for Friday night. The prize ranks as the sixth largest in U.S. history. That comes less than two months after a player in California won a record $2.04 billion dollar Powerball jackpot. Players also won lottery prizes, topping $1 billion earlier in 2022 and in 2021. Quote, it's thrilling to see the Mega Millions jackpot grow throughout the holidays and now into the new year, said Pat McDonald, the director of the Ohio Lottery, who also leads the state lotteries overseeing the Mega Millions game. But while it may seem the lottery gods are showering players with repeated chances at hard-to-fathom riches. The credit for the big prizes is actually due to math and more difficult odds. In the fall of 2017, lottery officials approved changes to Mega Millions that significantly lengthened the odds from 1 in 258.9 million to 1 in 302.6 million. They made similar changes to Powerball in October 2015, worsening the odds from 1 in 175.2 million to 1 in 292.2 million. The idea was that by making jackpots less common, ticket revenue could build up week after week, creating giant prices that would attract attention and pull in more players who had grown blasé about $100 or $200 million top prizes. In August 2021, Powerball also added a third weekly drawing, which enabled the jackpot to roll over and grow even more quickly as people had more chances to play and lose. Mega Millions has stuck with the two weekly drawings. Thanks to those moves, nine of the top ten largest lottery prizes have been won since 2017. Of course, Those uber-rich winners aren't quite as wealthy as it would seem. That's because the advertised jackpots are for winners who agree to take their money over 29 years in an annuity. Winners almost always choose the cash option, which for Friday's drawing would be $483.5 million. One-third or more of those winnings would go toward federal and, in some places, state taxes. Still, it's a lot of money. And lottery players at the Riverside Red X, a large grocery and liquor store in Riverside, Missouri, said it would change their lives forever. Carol Palmer of Parkville said she would pay off everything and take care of her three children and seven grandchildren if she won the Mega Millions Prize. The 80-year-old said she would also buy a house at a lake. Quote, I might not be able to use the lake house for very long, given my age, she said. But who knows? I might live to be a hundred. You have to dream a little. Alvin Brockington of Kansas City, Kansas, said his priorities would be paying his bills, helping everyone in his family, buying a house for his mother, and traveling. He said he has a sister in California whom he hasn't seen for 30 years or so and he would take the entire family to see her or fly her and other relatives to visit him. Quote, then I would get down on my knees and ask God to lead me to the people who really need help, he said. They say money is the root of all evil, but it is really the person who has the money, what kind of person they are, and what they do with it. Unquote. Brockington, a retired railroad worker, said he also plays other lottery games. Noting that the Powerball jackpot was also up to the hundreds of millions, he laughed and said, "I'd take that. I'd take one million dollars from any game. I'm not greedy. Even that would help a lot." Unquote. Robert Bowring, 70 of Kansas City, said, after sharing the prize with his family, he would find a good organization that would assist people who need help. Bowring said quote, "Everything is about sharing. If you have that much money, you have to spread it around, unquote. Mega Millions is played in 45 states as well as Washington, D.C. and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Our next story was written by Jeff Reinitz of The Courier. It's titled, Obadal Charged with Disorderly Conduct Over Council Meeting Argument, Dateline Waterloo. A regular at Waterloo City Council Meetings, who became involved in a heated exchange with the mayor, has been charged. Todd Allen Obadal, 54, was cited for disorderly conduct, a misdemeanor, for allegedly causing a disturbance at the meeting in council chambers on Tuesday. The former county Republican Party co-chair and one-time state legislative candidate was briefly detained at the police department as officers completed the paperwork he was released at about 7 p.m. The incident came as the council debated how to fill the vacancy for the panel's Ward 4 seat, through appointment or through a vote by residents in a special election. The original agenda called for filling Ward 4 City Council vacancy by appointment. As the item came up, Councillor Ray Foose moved to change wording to fill it by election And discussion turned to piggybacking the vote with the Hawkeye Community College bond referendum on March 7th. Councilor Jerome Amos Jr., who is leaving the Ward 4 seat to serve in the state legislature, said he was against the special election because of the cost and because Ward 4 residents wouldn't have representation until the election. Mayor Quinton Hart noted the city had received a petition to have a special election, and opined that the matter would likely end up in the ballot box. Wearing an American flag bandana on his head and a camouflage T-shirt, Obadal argued for filling the seat by special election. He noted the city had missed an opportunity to offer the ward for matter as part of an earlier special election for high-speed Internet services and suggested hastening the election date. Hart responded that the council supports holding the election. Obadal added that the council had yet to vote. The mayor told Obadal he no longer had the floor. Quote, I'm not playing with you tonight, Hart said. Obadal continued talking, and Hart directed police chief Joe Leibold to remove him. When Leibold approached Obadal, Obadal asked the chief to place him under arrest. Quote, no, I'm not going to do that. Grab your stuff, let's go, the chief said. Obadol didn't budge until the chief took him by the arm and pulled him toward the door. Obadol said Leibold informed him he was being arrested when they were in the hallway outside of Chambers. After two more residents' public comments, council members voted to fill the vacancy by special election. While in the police department's holding cell, Obadol sent a Facebook post reading, 2023 bingo become a literal political prisoner with a check mark next to it quote I've always stood for equal representation and equal application of the law and for process that was my motivation Obadal said Thursday he said he plans to attend and speak at future city council meetings this isn't the first time Obadal has been involved in a heated argument during a council meeting in 2019 the mayor asked police to remove obadal from the podium when discussion about a sewer leak led to a shouting match according to courier archives our next story appears at the top of the page of the courier and it is titled recount policies could change county auditors want more time for people to vote early and by mail the story came from the quad city times journalist sarah watson Iowa's top election official is proposing a bill aimed at bringing more uniformity to recounts. The proposal comes more than two years after a messy recount for the 2020 Marionette Miller-Meeks-Rita Hart congressional race, one of the closest House races in the country, with a six-vote margin. In the most recent midterm election, a lengthy Davenport House district recount showed an unusual swing in results, and officials braced for a statewide recount after a close state auditor race. A bill isn't yet filed with the Iowa legislature, but a news release on Thursday, the Iowa Secretary of State's office said the measure would standardize the recount timeline across Iowa's 99 counties, bolster recount boards in larger counties, and require more uniform methods for recounting, reconciling, and reporting ballots. Quote, the integrity of Iowa's elections is my top priority, and this bill would help ensure we have clean, secure elections and a recount process that is uniform across the state, Secretary of State Paul Pate said in an emailed statement. Quote, we had the opportunity to identify these areas of improvement while observing several large-scale recounts in recent years. The legislation would increase the size of recount boards depending on a county's population. Currently, when a candidate requests a recount, three candidate-picked people make up the board that tallies the ballots. Under the proposed legislation, recount boards in counties with a population of 15,000 to 49,000 would grow to 5 members counties with a population of more than 50000 would conduct recounts with 7 member boards another change under the bill would make just 2 of the recount board members candidate picked the remainder of the board members would be election poll workers selected by the chief judge of the judicial district balanced by party Quote, "recounts in large counties are difficult for just three people to conduct, Pate said in an emailed statement. I'd like to give the recount boards more members so the tallying of votes is more manageable and more efficient, unquote. The bill, according to the Secretary of State's office, also makes recount processes more uniform in multi-county races. In the 2020, then, second district race, Some counties did recounts by hand and some did tallies by machine. Quote, the proposed bill seeks to end that practice, the news release states. Another change would require all counties to hold an official canvas of elections on a certain day with a goal of making the recount timeline uniform for each county. In the back and forth race for House District 81, covering parts of Davenport, a recount board's result flipped the lead to the Republican in the race. The recount board made up of three members sorted through more than 23,000 absentee ballots for more than a week to count ballots cast in the House District 81. It's not yet clear what kind of support the bill will receive in the legislature, but in an interview in late December, House Speaker Pat Grassley said he expected more conversations about ensuring recount uniformity and trust in elections. Quote, I think you're going to see the legislature engage with the county level to see why are these things happening, because we want Iowans to have full confidence in the election system, and when they don't see a result until the second week of December on a state legislative race, people kind of think, oh, what's going on there, unquote. More time sought the State Association of County Auditors is asking Iowa lawmakers to lengthen the window for early and by-mail voting after running the first general election with a shortened 20-day window. A series of two legislative proposals in 2017 and 2021 cut the number of days Iowans could vote early from 40 days before an election to 20 days. Under the new law, auditors can only mail out ballots beginning at 20 days. Leaders of the Iowa State Association of County Auditors say the best outcome would be for lawmakers to restore the 40-day early voting window. But the association is proposing a less strident solution to crunched by mail balloting they hope will garner support, allowing county auditors to mail ballots five days before in-person voting begins, Ringgold County Auditor and Association President Amanda Waskey said could cut down on voter confusion. She sent ballots to an Iowan couple winterizing in Arizona, and when they reported they didn't receive them, Waskey said there wasn't time to send another ballot by Election Day, another 2021 change in Iowa law. Quote, I didn't have enough time to turn around and mail them a new one, Walski said. Quote, they wouldn't have received it if I had that extra few days, unquote. All 99 county auditors have a vote on the association's legislative priorities for the year, and more than 70% of county auditors are Republicans, according to a review of the association's website. The association opposed the past legislation shortening the window of early voting and has made returning to the 40-day window a priority each year, said past President Jennifer Garms, Auditor of Clayton County. The appetite for returning to a 40-day window among Republican legislative leaders is likely very low. Senator Jack Whitfer said of election laws, quote, I don't envision a lot of drastic changes at this point going forward, unquote. Iowa is among 14 states that mail out ballots fewer than 30 days before an election, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Just Colorado and Washington State have a shorter period, sending ballots at 18 days. Kansas also sends ballots out 20 days ahead of an election. Among states that offer early in-person voting, early voting periods range from three days to 46. The average is 23. Quote, I think 20 days is a very reasonable period for people to vote early, Whitford said. Quote, and it's right in the middle of all the 50 states. There's a lot of liberal states out there that are a lot tighter, unquote. Next, we have a story titled Brenna Byrd sworn in as Attorney General, written by Caleb McCullough of the Courier, and begins with a photograph of Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd speaking at a podium at the swearing in ceremony. Dateline, Des Moines. Brenna Byrd, Iowa's new Attorney General, took the oath of office in the Capitol on Thursday, formally swearing in as the state's first Republican Attorney General since 1979. She was joined by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds and former Governor Terry Branstad, who praised her work as an attorney and in government. Byrd was Branstad's chief legal counsel from 2011 to 2015, and she was previously chief of staff to U.S. Representative Steve King. Before becoming attorney general this week, Byrd was most recently the Guthrie County attorney. She was sworn in by Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice Susan Christensen. Speaking to the crowd gathered at the Capitol on Thursday, Reynolds said Byrd stood out in Branstad's administration when Reynolds was lieutenant governor. On the 2022 campaign trail, Reynolds said she was again impressed by Byrd. Quote, as I watched her with Iowans, watched her sharing her vision for the A.G.'s office, and truly her passion to serve. It was clear that all these years later, this servant leader hasn't changed a bit, Reynolds said. The governor highlighted Byrd's campaign pledge to challenge President Joe Biden's administration. Reynolds said federal leaders have overstepped their bounds, and Byrd will work to keep the federal government in check. Quote, we're all familiar with that defiant declaration on our state seal. Our liberties we prize And our rights we will maintain, she said. The position of AG is one of the main tools the people of Iowa have that makes good on this promise. Byrd campaigned on a message of challenging Biden's administration and on Tuesday signed on to a series of lawsuits against rules set by Biden and national Democratic lawmakers. The state was already a party to those suits, but former Democratic Attorney General Tom Miller did not attach his name to them. Byrd narrowly defeated Democrat Tom Miller in November election, a victory that was marked by a large swing toward Republicans statewide and heavy support from Reynolds. In her new role, Byrd said she was committed to upholding the state laws and the U.S. Constitution. I'm going to serve all Iowans, whether folks voted for me or not, she said Thursday. I'm here to work for everybody and serve everybody, unquote. Miller attended the event, and Byrd thanked him for aiding her team as she transitions into the office. Miller said in a statement last week he was thankful to Iowans for giving him a record-setting 40 years in office. Quote, we did it our way, he said. We never compromised on our values and principles. That is enormously satisfying to me, unquote. In addition to joining anti-Biden lawsuits, Byrd announced a top-down and bottom-up audit of the office's Victim Services Division. Quote, I am thankful to work with our prosecutors and law enforcement and crime victims uphold the Constitution, she said at the Capitol Thursday. Quote, just looking forward to getting back to work. Unquote. And now listeners, at this time we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 6th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Waterloo. Thomas, known as Tom, Lee Adams, 71, of Waterloo, Iowa, passed away on Saturday, December 31, 2022, at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital. Following Tom's wishes, cremation rites have been accorded, and there will be no public services held at this time. The family plans to keep Tom's wishes and do a small private celebration of life at a later date. Memorial contributions may be directed in Tom's name to his family, which will be later designated elsewhere. For further information or to leave an online condolence, please visit Haggerty Hagerty Waychofgrarup Funeral Service, South Street location, is caring for Tom and his family. Thomas Lee Adams was born August 6, 1951, in Waterloo, Iowa. The son of C.D. Mike, and Leona Chris Adams. He was raised in Waterloo and educated in the Waterloo Catholic School District, where he attended St. Mary's and graduated from Columbus High School. On May 4, 1974, Tom was united in marriage to the love of his life, Linda Mortensen, at the Little Brown Church in Nashua, Iowa. From this union, the couple were blessed with two children, Carrie and Casey. Tom was a very hardworking man who dedicated 46 years of his life as a land surveyor for Wayne Claussen Engineer and Surveying before retiring in 2019. He was an avid Chicago Bears and Cubs fan, but you could catch him on the couch watching any game regardless of who was playing. He also enjoyed spending time in his garden, biking, playing softball, and sharing treats with his granddaughters. Tom was a devoted Catholic and regularly attended St. Mary's and Queen of Peace for many years. However, his main passion in life was all the memories that were made with his family, friends, and dog, Boston. Tom is going to be truly missed. Left to cherish Tom's memory is his wife, Linda Adams of Waterloo, Iowa, children, Carrie and Dirk Bushman of Cedar Falls, Iowa, and Casey Spouse Jen, Adams, of Hiawatha, Iowa. Grandchildren Mackenzie, Brian Smith, Adams, of Fort Worth, Texas. Lily, Linny, Libby, and Lacey, all of Hiawatha, Iowa. Four brothers, Dave, Spouse Joan, Adams, of Marion, Iowa. John, Spouse Jolen, Adams, of Waterloo, Iowa. Bill, Spouse Becky, of Waterloo, Iowa and Chuck, spouse Becky of Waterloo, Iowa, one sister Sally Adams of Waterloo, Iowa, along with many nieces and nephews. He is preceded in death by his parents, one sister Sandy Adams, one great-niece Zoe Norton, and his four-legged furry companion Boston. Now we've gotten to the point where the courier lists death notices, and they are as follows. Lori Oswegan, sixty two of Old Wine, formerly of Waterloo, died Wednesday, january fourth, twenty twenty three, at Grandview Healthcare Center in Old Wine. Arrangements are being made with Parrot and Wood Chapel of Memories funeral home in Waterloo. Next, Raymond Ball, ninety-six of Iowa Falls, died Thursday, january fifth, twenty twenty three, at Eldora Specialty Care. Arrangements are being made with Council Woodley Funeral Home Incorporated, Iowa Falls, and Dennis D. Bond, 75, of Wadena, died Thursday, January 5, 2023, at Maplecrest Manor, Fayette. Arrangements are with Jameson Smith's Funeral Home in Arlington. Pamela Ann Hammers, 61, of Cedar Falls, died Wednesday, January 4, 2023. Arrangements are being made with Dahl Van Hoof Schoof Funeral Home, June R. Markin, 90, of Cedar Falls, died Sunday, January 1, 2023, at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital in Waterloo. Arrangements are with Locke Funeral Home, James A., known as Jim Platt, 94, of Cedar Falls, formerly of Waterloo, died Wednesday, January 4, 2023, at Mercy One Waterloo. Arrangements are with Locke Funeral Services. And lastly, Norman Eugene Zitsky, 88, of Cedar Falls, died Wednesday, January 3, 2023, at Mercy One Covenant Medical Center, Waterloo. Arrangements for Norman are with Dahl Van Hoof Schuof Funeral Home. That's the end of the obituaries in today's paper. Now let's turn to the opinion section. This editorial comes from Peter Coy at the New York Times. Workers are losing in the inflation battle. Memo to staff. We highly value your work for us. However, we are not going to give you raises this year that are big enough to catch you up with inflation. We're just doing what the Federal Reserve wants us to do. That's not a real memo, of course, but it fits the facts. Most workers get a raise once a year typically in March or April. This spring would be employers' chance to give pay increases large enough to restore their workers' purchasing power, which has been eroded by unexpectedly high inflation. But it appears they aren't going to do that. The Bureau of Labor Statistics is likely to report next week that consumer prices in the 12 months through December rose about 7.1%, according to Action Economics, a consulting firm in Boulder, Colorado. Yet the average increase in the compensation budget of medium-sized and large U.S. employers for 2023 is 4.3 percent, according to a November survey by Mercer, a consulting firm that's part of Marsh McLennan. Employers rarely cut workers' nominal pay, the dollar number that appears on their checks, because they realize it's bad for morale. But as Mercer's survey goes to show, employers have fewer qualms about cutting workers' real pay, which is the nominal number adjusted for inflation. Real pay is what matters because it determines what you can and can't afford to buy. The decline in inflation-adjusted pay appears to be, quote, the most severe faced by employed workers over the past 25 years, unquote. Robert Rich and Joseph Tracy, economists at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, wrote in October in an article with former Dallas Fed intern Mason Crone. That's somewhat surprising given the low unemployment rate, which would seem to give workers the leverage they need to demand higher pay. But high inflation came on so quickly that workers fell behind, and they haven't caught up. Plus, a smaller share of workers belong to unions that bargain on their behalf. Oh, as for the part of the imaginary memo about the Fed, Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, made clear at a December 14th news conference that the Fed doesn't want wage increases to catch up with prices. Quote, it's not that we don't want wage increases. We want strong wage increases. We just want them to be at a level that's consistent with 2% inflation, he told reporters. Inflation hawks such as Powell appear to believe that if wages did go up a lot this year, say 7%, employers would pay for them with another round of big price increases, which would trigger another round of demands for higher wages, and so on ad infinitum. That would be bad. It's true, as Powell repeatedly says, that low and stable inflation is a prerequisite for steady economic growth that leaves workers better off in the long run. Unfortunately, in the short run, in trying to prevent a wage price spiral from starting, the Fed is slowing the economy in a way that is likely to lock in employer's advantage over the employees. Corporations have used high inflation as an opportunity to pass through highly profitable price increases, and now workers are being deprived of the opportunity to even things out. Quote, Inflation is fundamentally the outcome of the distributional conflict between firms, workers, and taxpayers. Unquote. Oliver Blanchard, a professor emeritus at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, wrote in a weekend tweet cited Tuesday by my opinion colleague Paul Krugman on Twitter, Blanchard sounds a lot like Michael Kalaki, a Polish economist who in 1943 wrote an influential article for Political Quarterly, Political Aspects of Full Employment. Kalaki was also channeled in an article published by the Federal Reserve Board in May by two Fed economists, David Ratner and J. Sim, representing themselves not the institution who cited the conflict theory of inflation as follows, quote, The cause of inflation can be found in the class conflict between capitalists and workers, unquote. Economists tend to attribute the end of high inflation in the early 1980s to the increase in the federal funds rate to as high as 19% during Paul Volcker's chairmanship of the Fed in 1980 and 1981. But President Reagan's firing of more than 11,000 air traffic controllers in August of 1981, which weakened organized labor, may have been a factor as well, Ratner and Sim wrote. Since they happened around the same time, it's hard to tell. According to conflict theory, wage-price spirals occur when capital and labor are evenly matched, like a pair of heavyweights in a 10-round boxing match. Spirals don't develop when the capitalists get a first-round knockout, which appears to be the present case. What's worse for workers is that the referee, i.e. the Federal Reserve, is making it harder for them by pushing up unemployment and thus reducing their bargaining power. Quote, I honestly think that a guy like Jerome Powell is embarrassed by this, but he won't tell you. Mario Saccaraccia, a professor of economics at the University of Ottawa, told me, Is there a better way to heal the economy than jacking up interest rates until the economy cracks and workers lose their jobs? Sakharachia mentions incomes policy, an old idea that involves government-mediated coordination between business and labor to restrain both prices and wages. Blanchard, a former chief economist, Of the International Monetary Fund mentioned the same notion in his weekend tweets, as did Krugman. A Fed induced slowdown, Blanchard wrote, is a highly inefficient way to deal with distribution conflicts. He added, One can or should dream of a negotiation between workers, firms, and the state, in which the outcome is achieved without triggering inflation and requiring a painful slowdown. Incomes policy can get messy if the government meddles too forcefully or clumsily in the workings of the labor market, but the status quo ain't great either, especially for those of us who are staring at pay raise this year that isn't a raise at all. Next is the Editor's Notebook by Art Cullen of the Storm Lake Times pilot. Give me some of that old-time socialism. Seeing all those bags and hapless holiday travelers Stacked up in Chicago and Denver, made me think that a little bit of regulation and socialism won't turn us into Cuba. Flying was more expensive before deregulation, but you got there with your bags. You got a free cocktail with a little hot meal. Everyone was not snarling at one another. Ozark could get you from Sioux City to just about anywhere. The cost made it exotic. You only flew if you were bound for Hawaii. You did not fly to Vegas for the weekend unless you could afford the gambling. More expensive isn't all bad when it comes to regulating needless travel. Most of the people stuck in the airport didn't actually need to be there with kids and dogs in tow. Deregulation made us accustomed to the most inefficient, environmentally bad form of travel. Cost-cutting made the whole experience degrading and dysfunctional. We accept that the TSA can probe, scan, and search us, but we do not demand that airlines deliver us as they promised. You could watch it in real time on TV at the doctor's office. I thought I was dying, as is my manner, and I thought it would be better here than in the Dallas airport. My physician told me, after amazingly fast facts and with good cheer, that there's nothing wrong with me that a good walk wouldn't cure. Since I am on Medicare, the office visit cost me nothing. I called that morning thinking that persistent lower back pain was a sure sign of terminal kidney disease. A friendly receptionist told me I could come in that afternoon. This is at United Community Health Center, a construct of socialized medicine launched and supported with federal funding to fill care gaps that the private market did not. Here, Most of the health care bills are paid by Medicare or Medicaid. The doctors all live well. There is no evidence that Medicare for All would ration care. To the contrary, I visit the clinic more often now and use preventative screening more than I did when I labored under private health insurance. Our insurance rates typically rose by double digits annually, 44% one year, 58% another year. 78% 78% the worst. What can you do when one company dominates the Iowa market? Health insurance costs suck our little newspaper dry. Iowa's Medicaid program was not made more efficient by turning it over to a couple private health insurance companies. Dozens of rural nursing homes have had to close. Health care providers say they are getting shorted on payments. We can use some more socialism in our health care. My experience is. It's the bee's knees, and I loathe seeing a doctor. It is a religious tenet in Iowa that agriculture shall not be regulated. It might be in the book of Genesis. The state Supreme Court says so. The federal court says so. When we had a set aside, we had more farmers buying pickups and a clean Raccoon River. More pheasants, too. You give up 10% of your marginal acres to grass in return for a subsidy, reduced acreage. Leads to higher corn prices. You prevent downstream problems, like suffocating the Gulf of Mexico, but it gets in the way of capital that wants to seize every last acre. The result is in the ledgers since we won the freedom to farm under the Reagan administration. Half as many now as then, Fonda or Early, are no better off for it. At least the markets are unfettered. That's what matters. We used to regulate the purchase and use of guns. Now we are arming the school staff in Cherokee and Spirit Lake. Some limits seem to be in order. Another quaint practice. We used to put limits on speech under broad protections outlined in the First Amendment. Editors regulated the debate and tried to contain the universe to a semblance of fact. It worked pretty well in Iowa for better than a century. Now social media sites like Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok are not regulated. They are not liable for what libels or treasons are published on their platform, as newspapers, televisions, and radios are. The result has been a breakdown in civil society and a dangerous explosion of sheer ignorance. Bleach might cure COVID. You should sure storm the Capitol on January 6th. Nobody is seriously talking about making these huge companies – TikTok is owned by China Incorporated – liable for what they publish which flies in the face of centuries of common and written law. Of course, the trick is finding the balance. At the Havana airport, garbage bags covered the men's urinals, and you never knew if the airplane would ever take off. Denver is better. You don't want freeloaders like me overwhelming the doctor with imaginary kidney failure, but none of the medical folks around here are living in a single, wide, from their government reimbursements, and they don't have to deliver babies if they don't want to. We should afford to plant some more grass in place of corn, for the sake of the river and maybe even the planet, while keeping old Macdonald on his farm. I'm sure most people at Chicago Midway Airport on Christmas Day wished that Secretary Pete would kick some hiney, but that is nostalgic for a bygone time we are resigned to suppose. Now let's return to reading local news from The Courier. Iowa woman believed to be the oldest in the United States dies at 115 years old. Story comes to us from the Associated Press. Dateline is Lake City. An Iowa woman who was believed to be the oldest living person in the United States has died at the age of 115. Bessie Lorena Hendricks of Lake City died Tuesday at the Shady Oaks Care Center, according to a Lamp and Powers funeral home in Lake City. Hendricks celebrated her 115th birthday at the home on November 7th and was listed last year by the Los Angeles-based Gerontology Research Group as the country's oldest living person until her death. Born in 1907 in west-central Iowa's Calhoun County, Hendricks was alive to witness news of the sinking of the Titanic, World War I and II, the Great Depression, and both the Spanish flu and COVID-19 pandemics. She was a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse there and the mother of five children, according to the Des Moines Register. She is survived by three of her children. A funeral service for Hendricks will be held at Lamp and Powers Funeral Home on Saturday. The Gerontology Research Group reports that Hendrick's death leaves 114-year-old Eddie Caccarelli of California as the country's oldest living person. Next, we have a story filed by Jeff Reinitz, woman arrested for allegedly selling stolen car, Dateline Waterloo. A Cedar Rapids woman has been arrested for allegedly selling a stolen car in Waterloo to another person. Kenesha Quinet Bolden, 42, was arrested for forgery and second-degree theft. Bond was set at $17,000. According to court records, the victim reported her 2005 Ford Taurus stolen on November 5th. Authorities allege Bolden sold the car to another person for $500 on November 7th and forged signatures on the vehicle's title to transfer it. Bolden, formerly of Charles City, is also awaiting trial on charges of operating a vehicle without the owner's consent and driving while suspended after she allegedly was found driving a stolen Ford Focus in Waterloo on November 15th. The next story was written by Tom Barton of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau, titled Iowa's House Members Back McCarthy. Frustration mounted after a third day of voting failed to break a stalemate of Thursday evening between GOP factions in the U.S. House over the election of Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker, Iowa's U.S. House members continued to back McCarthy in a chamber that remained paralyzed, unable to elect a leader and officially seat its members, as a group of 20 hardline anti establishment Republicans. Dig in against McCarthy's bid for Speaker, despite concessions from the California Republican. Democrats, meanwhile, seemed content to let Republicans twist in the wind. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat from California, told reporters there was no chance Democrats will strike a deal to provide the votes to elect McCarthy, The Washington Post reported. The last time electing a House Speaker went 10 rounds or more, was in 1859, when it took 44 ballots over two months. Until a Speaker is elected, lawmakers cannot be sworn in and a new Congress officially seated. Meaning, until someone wins the gavel, House lawmakers remain members-elect who are able to occupy their offices and field calls from constituents, but cannot adopt rules, set up committees, vote on bills, Attend high level security briefings, or help constituents navigate federal bureaucracy until a speaker is chosen. Quote, Washington is broken. I came to Congress to fight the chaos and dysfunction in D.C., and am just as frustrated as Iowans are by the current stalemate, Republican U.S. Representative Ashley Henson of Marion said in a statement quote, We need to elect Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. In the meantime, I am focused on Iowans' priorities, restoring fiscal responsibility, securing the border, unleashing American energy, and holding China accountable, unquote. Hinson said her D.C. and district offices in Iowa are fully operational and serving Iowans. Anyone who needs assistance with the federal government should reach out to our team, she said. Fellow Republicans U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra of Hull said, quote, it's time to get to work to pass our conservative agenda. Quote, the delays only help Democrats obstruct our efforts to rein in wasteful spending, balance the budget, and fix our broken economy, Feenstra said in a statement. Republican Representative-elect Zach Nunn echoed Hinson and Feenstra, quote, our D.C. team is up and running, and the bulk of our staff is hired and already operating in Iowa, Nunn said, with three new district offices opened in Des Moines, Creston, and Ottumwa. Quote, my top priority remains serving our constituents across Iowa 03 and delivering for our city and county communities, Nunn said in statement. However, D.C. operates, we're going to keep working each day for Iowans. We will get to work as promised, on lowering inflation, strengthening national security, gaining energy independence, and curbing expansive government overreach. Unquote. Iowa U.S. Representative Marionette Miller Meeks on Wednesday joined other Republican veterans at a news conference warning that the drawn out fight over speakership is damaging the chamber's national security oversight, preventing lawmakers from participating in classified briefings, and meeting with top national security officials, and delaying the work of the House Intelligence, Armed Services, and Foreign Affairs Committees. Until a Speaker is elected, University of Iowa graduate and U.S. House Clerk Cheryl Johnson currently presides over the House. A Louisiana native, Johnson graduated from UNI in 1980, where she earned a degree in journalism and mass communication. She studied law at Howard University. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 6th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to Your Iris, I was first and only radio reading service.